This is Frankly Speaking Podcast. To turn up all the antenna of which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit at a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks that give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. What it do, what it do, what it do. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Frank G, and we are back with episode seven, uh, a stimulation in education, which is kind of a continuation on what was last week's episode when I kind of was just giving my personal opinion, my personal viewpoint uh, on what I was seeing, you know, in my meditation time of my little hiatus that I took that I spoke to you all about. But before we get into that. Uh, we're going to hit the media corner where in this section, I pretty much talk about anything, you know, media wise, whether it's print media, as in books, uh, TV shows, movies, music that I am listening to or paying attention to at the moment. And right now, uh, the thing that besides the books that I'm reading that I talked to you about last podcast, uh, I'm currently, listening to a few new uh, music albums uh xavier omar put out a new project if you feel me and he you know if any of you know about xavier omar he's pretty spot on with his albums uh excellent music uh in the r&b genre or category as they're calling it now also toby who's also and he's uh Elements Volume 1 is very good. Uh, let me see what else here. Veen, V-E-E-N, put out a new EP, uh, which is which is decent. Uh, WizKid has one coming out. Can't wait till that drops. Uh, Benny the Butcher has a new album out, part of Griselda. Uh, if you're into hardcore hip-hop, if you were a big fan of like Wu-Tang, uh, you'll probably like Griselda and their individual members uh, put out solo projects all this year. He's the last one. So uh, James Blake dropped a new one, a new EP uh, called Before. Omar Apollo, very good album. 
also and then uh black thought put out a new one i'm looking in my library right here and uh these are all the albums that i've been downloading so many of them but black thought put out a uh streams of thought volume three cain and abel uh what else here did i download sizzla the uh reggae artist put out a new album for those of you who are in you know familiar with old school reggae you know who he is and uh Devon Terrell put out another project. He's really good. I, I like him a lot. So, but uh, Manny Wells' Mirage project is pretty good. Terrence Martin and Robert Glasper put out an, uh, a new project, Dinner Party. So these are all some of the, the music that I'm <laughs> having rotation right now. And, of course, the 21 Savage, um, Beast Mode, I mean, uh, Savage Mode 2. Uh, they put out a new one, which is chopped and screwed version of it. I haven't listened to it yet, but I will. So, and, uh, yeah, I know, let me see here. There's one more thing that I had downloaded into my, yep, that was it. I think so. And, of course, it's not new, but, you know, I have my rotation of Bad Bunny as well. <laughs> That's my guy there. And Nav, the brown boy. But uh, so as far as music, that's pretty much what I have in rotation at the moment. And uh, so getting into tonight's topic, the clip that you heard, you know, when the podcast started was none other than Mr. Baldwin himself. He uh, was on a uh, TV show with Dick Cavett and uh, that's where the clip came from and I put the clip there because it kind of sets the tone for what I'm speaking to and it's not so much of you know trying to you know be hateful or anything like that what it is is it's pointing out the truth of the fact you know and what it means to when the you know the whole assimilation thing happened you know how it kind of started because it started mostly with education was the first it was the first thing you know and the whole debate of uh classical versus practical or industrial education and which education should blacks go to after the civil war you know after the emancipation when we i mean practically freed ourselves fighting in that war and you know, went up against the uh, people, you know, integrating into a society where we just fought a war, but the people that we fought against were they're keeping us, you know, and our ancestors or those of us who are descendants of those that fought at that time, you know, as slaves, but yet they turn out to be the victims after we fought back. They're the victims. And now we're being at this point in history, we're so-called free now but now we have to integrate into their society their school system and they're making a decision on what type of education that we should have and this is where the assimilation starts to uh really happen and uh you know it, it as you see what you got now you know society is the result of all of that that transpired at that time you know and uh so I spoke about, 
you know, and I just want to jump right in. Uh, I spoke about uh, a trying to live up to this standard that was put in place, you know, via the assimilation, naturally, right? When you trying to assimilate into someone else's society, that's what you're expected to do. You know, you're expected to come in and behave, basically, <laughs> for long and short of it. But just keeping on the, you know, education and the assimilation into the, edu you know, the educational system in the U.S. at the time, um, I spoke about the book, uh, The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson and last time. And uh, I went back and partly re read half the book since I put out, you know, since the last episode. And a few things stood out to me. It's an, an incredible book. And it was written, the book was written, I should have it here in front of me. So let me get the copyright. So just to give you a... Uh, idea Carter G. Woodson was born 1875 he died in 1950 uh, the publishing on this book I believe this book was written in 19 probably somewhere in 1907 or something like that oh here it is 1933 yeah 1933 first published by the Associated Publishers 1933 and the thing is that he talks about in this book it seems as if it's happening right now as if he's sitting in front of a computer typing this up um, yeah and, and you know so the whole thing with uh, the education piece you know it goes you know when you get into a society and they're making a decision on what type of education you should be having, whether it's practical education or, or industrial and or classical, you know, the difference between the two, one being focused on skill set. So um, this would be like your vocational schools nowadays, you know, focusing on a, a practical skill where you can just go into the workforce, basically creating laborers. Uh, your classical is just the other side of that where you're focusing on more uh, cerebral categories such as philosophy, literature, things like that. And, you know, that's pretty much the difference between the two. And looking at it now, I don't know if either one of those systems of education has produced anything of real tangible you know products in terms of you know uplifting a group you know and and carter g woodson he says that you know when these teachers you know the, the the teachers that came down after the emancipation from the north to educate the blacks they weren't coming down to uplift they were coming down to basically uh just teach you how to behave so it wasn't so much of a trying to educate you and better you as a person they was just trying to come down and you know teach you how to do what they say and so on and so forth so 
and you know fast forward a little further um this assimilation into the education system kind of split the black community in a way where you had those who were uneducated we'll just say the ones who didn't you know go to college and then you had the ones who did go to college and it kind of caused a divide right and the ones who didn't go to college are the ones who it seems made most of the businesses right because you know i think this is probably true in any society where most businesses are created not by people who actually go to college to create you know for business most business owners or business starters probably don't have a degree at first or a degree at all uh they pro if they do have one they probably got it while going you know starting their business or after their business got to a certain point they probably went to school to you know sharpen their knowledge to run the business better you know you think about most of the uh kings of industry you know if you go back and trace their roots back to their inception of you know when it started uh they didn't have any degrees you know they just had an idea and they believed in that idea and they got it done you know so um yeah, so with, with, with that, um, I wanted to, because I think now, especially now, uh, that split in education, you know, when that assimilation process started is now being, to me, just in, in my view, seen as a, uh, as a detriment. I think it was always a detriment, but the the split comes from, you know, a group where the, as Carter G. Woodson puts them, the highly educated, you know, and I'll, and I'll read a little excerpt here. Uh, the uneducated Negro businessman, however, is actually at work doing the very thing which the miseducated Negro, he's talking about the ones that did go to school, he calls them miseducated Negro, has been taught to believe cannot be done. This much handicapped Negro businessman could do better if he has some assistance, but our schools are turning out men who do not as much to do as much to impede the progress of the Negro in business as they do to help him. The trouble is that they do not think for themselves. He goes on to say here, quote, if the highly educated Negro would forget most of the untried theories taught to him in school, he could see through the propaganda which has been instilled into his mind under the pretext of education. If he would fall in love with his own people and begin to sacrifice for their uplift, if the highly educated Negro would do these things, he could solve some of the problems now confronting the race. And again, this book was written in 1933. And that's exactly what's happening now. So there's via that, you know, and he goes to, you know, via this whole indoctrination process via the education, he's talking about you have a group of people who didn't go to school, who decided to, you know, stay back, you know, get a job, work hard and try to survive. And they started businesses. Some of them did. And they can only go, go but so far because all they really know is the actual work itself. And, and he's saying 
if those who actually went to college and had that higher learning would come back and help out the business owners, you will be able to create industry and actually make way in industry rather than being relegated to what we're doing now. As we look around in 2020, most of the businesses that we have are, again, little small startup businesses. They're pop up shop, clothing, food trucks. Um, I mean, whatever else, small things like that. They're not making any leeway. However, we have this whole group of, you know, black men and black women who are very educated, especially now in 2020, the black women, super smart sharp you know super sharp like and they're not coming back to help out small businesses or anything like that they're trying to get their own but is that the question is is that really their fault because you come from a space where you don't have much the the community as whole is seen as not having much would you go back after you don't got your education you're looking to now build for self you're not necessarily looking to reach back and try to uplift your own people you're like all right well i i you know i don't spent all this money i don't worked hard you know to learn how to you know do all these classes or whatever the core you know whatever whether it's business administration psychology you know these are just college diplomas not to diminish anyone who has been to college for those degrees but you're coming out of college you don't have any jobs so uh and that's the face of what's going on unless your degree is very specialized uh maybe like engineering chemistry stuff like that uh if you don't have a specialized degree and you have a general what they call the term is college diploma degrees as again business uh psychology those type of things unless you have a doctor's degree but even if you have a doctor's degree you're still having a hard time unless you're starting your own practice or starting your own firm, you know, consulting firm or something like that. But um, that whole idea of the highly educated, you know, man or or woman just going off on their own is causing even more of an issue. And it's causing the gap between that, you know, the peoples to, you know, the haves and have not type thing to grow even more, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's all down to when this entire system was put in place after, you know, after the emancipation, you know, it, it, you can trace this directly back there. And it was just, this is just one excerpt from that I've, you know, made notes of, you know, and, uh, and another one here is you know, based on the education, uh, Carter uh, G. Woodson says that what Negroes are now being taught does not bring their minds into harmony with life as they must face it. And he's absolutely right. Like what is, what are, was our, sorry, what is our, our children being taught in the school system today? Like think about when, when we were children, when we were in the school system and we came out into the real world, you know, outside of our parents' home for the first time, you know, whether it was after college or before college for some of us, and some of us went on to college. But what, I mean, think about what was we being taught? Was it something that was really readying us to to create a life and to live a life? Or was it 
creating more interdependence on them or their system that they had that they put in place you know was it creating uh was the education creating autonomy of self or was it creating dependency you know and that and that's really what the whole idea was even from the beginning from the inception when they you know started when the whole assimilation assimilation process started it was never to again you know create autonomy for the blacks that were now free and this they just saw as this big labor force and how do you you know you keep this labor force from not being slaves anymore but now they're just free cheap labor you know again uh new slaves as kanye called them you know so uh this is all part of and a result of the assimilation into a society that never once had the best interests in any one besides itself and the people who created it you know so and this is you can see this in the black community you can see this in the latino community it's the same you know although different and which brings me to another point um the difference may you know coming from a culture that is known and, and instilled into the family like for example the latinos have a cult they they know who their people are you see what i'm saying they have a culture they have a way of life usually you know a lot of them whether born here or born in their country of origin they have a strong sense of what their culture is so you know most of the time and you have some that are, you know the newer generations uh who were born in the states and that don't speak any spanish at all they have a different out view on than the ones that you know do speak spanish and do know where they their families come from and their you know the culture is kind of still strong in the home versus uh that's all this is also the same with um any group of black people that have migrated here that did not live in the states who migrated here on their own volition uh they also have a strong sense of culture from when their own country you know and things of that nature so when they come here and they start to assimilate it's slightly different than the people who descend from uh the so-called uh slave industry or let's just call it what it is when these people were stolen from where they were they everything for them was erased their language what they believed in their religion you know because it wasn't christianity it wasn't islam you know what i'm saying so you these things are you know fairly new especially islam islam was just saw as a uh was in 19 in the 1930s i believe as a uh worldwide religion is it's been there much longer however those people that were coming from africa at the time had other religions outside of christianity and islam or catholicism these people practiced you know yoruba or something similar and the process of being stripped of everything your language your belief system uh your family 
and then now just treat it as just nothing then you have to fight your way out you know you fought back a civil war broke out which is pretty convenient one side says hey come fight for us you know we'll you know we'll let you be free if you help us win so i mean fair enough so we you know fight for them nearly which we freed ourselves doing that you know and uh when the fighting stopped there started to look like yo we should keep going probably like we got our own people we retrain the fight now we can probably really take things up a notch and then it's like oh wait a minute you know we told you you'll be free so here's the emancipation so you take that so now you're free you don't have anything you don't have any systems of commerce you don't have anything besides you know you may know a little bit of agriculture because that's what you've been doing prior to being free and uh you you mostly stay down south so then they come up with okay well you know you start fighting well well we need school systems we need this we need that you know you try to start to try to create your own so they say no 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 we'll we'll come and uh help you we'll put something together and and for you and you can you know bring your children to the schools and all that stuff and thus setting in motion what we have now so in that whole process you know there's been a lot lost because they're not teaching anything of any substance to you know these children in in the school system you know so um and Yeah, and, and the, to go back to uh, one thing that I noted with that Mr. Baldwin said in his clip was he had to leave the U.S. to basically regain a sense of balance for himself when he went to France. And Carter G. Woodson says here, uh, men have risen to the higher levels by getting out of this country to relieve themselves of their stifling traditions and to recover from their education. So he's basically saying that, you know, not only are you poor here, you don't have anything, but the education is also using, they're using the education as a weapon to uh, further divide and so on and so forth. So, to me, that is probably one of the biggest things during this whole assimilation process that we have to find a way to get out of, I guess, or to relearn or unlearn, however you want to put it, you know, and uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's a tough one. You know, I don't like I said, uh, I just hope that bringing up these topics will uh, help others to have this conversation and maybe some solutions can, you know, start to start to come about, you know, I don't know if segregation from each other is the, is the answer or not the answer. Quick side note thought that popped in my head. Uh, last week I brought up in the media corner, the Lovecraft country, right? And I went back and I was watching one of the episodes uh, I am, I believe it was 
episode, uh, I want to say episode six or five or something like that, maybe seven. And the episode was about when Hippolyta was, went on her trip, you know, became the, the astral traveler. And the one particular scene that kind of, uh, stood out was when she was talking to her husband and she said that uh, she was shrinking herself to be his husband. I mean, to be his wife. And I thought about that. I said, you know, and especially in the context of what Lovecraft Country is showing. Is you're in your you have a black cast that is set in Jim Crow era who has been assimilated to live like the people of the dominant culture and what you know again apart from the education because his you know uh her husband Hippolyta's husband was big was big into reading I think they own a bookstore I believe it was or uh he did the uh the traveler's guide so he read a lot right and is you know, the question is, and I was speaking to my aunt about this, uh, this particular episode, and she posed a question. And I think it, it kind of fit into this simulation because I think this this idea of having to fit again, as I put into uh, last week, having to fit certain roles and standards that don't fit who we are as a people in general. And her question was, does the black man unconsciously shrink the black woman in an effort to justify his manhood due to assimilation? And my answer would be yes. I mean, by proxy, you know, like due to the assimilation, he does, you know, indirectly treat the black woman as the dominant culture treats its woman. Because that's what he's been indoctrinated into. You know, this is the literature that, you know, he reads as a child coming up through the system are stories that do just that, you know. And when you live in a society like that, that's what you're going to mimic, unfortunately, especially when you don't know your own history. You don't know where your people come from. You don't know the customs of how a woman was treated in your original space of being, then you don't have anything else to look up to besides uh, the dominant culture, really. And even in that space, I don't know how much shrinking of each other has been done. Uh, And this is going into a different, you know, a different way as as, as far as relationships go. You know, like, is it collateral damage from the assimilation process that trying to be a black man in America causes you to, in an indirect way, step on your own woman to try to make it in America, to try to survive, you know, and I would pose the opposite as well. You know, does it does 
being a black woman mean that you have to shrink yourself to fit into that role or now especially in 2020 it's 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 kind of looking at like you know it's causing a lot of black women to question like do i even need to even be in a relationship with this man to even get to where i want to get to in life you know so it's it's a double-edged sword and it's both both things are negative aspects of not really knowing the customs and how we traditionally treat each other based on dissimulation into a society that uh that doesn't fit you that doesn't that hasn't been written to take care of you you know so it, there's a there's a lot to unpack with this particular uh topic and you know i can't cover everything you know i can only think of you know just certain things that would be forever trying to decode all what happens in the simulation you know process but the two main things that uh for this particular topic that i wanted to cover would be the relationship aspect and uh also the education aspect because i think those two things are the cornerstones of the plight that we have going on you know the relationship to as a man as a black man in america the relationship to the woman but also the woman to the man has been pretty much i mean destroyed it's it's a rare thing that you're able to find a relationship and and we've probably all seen them and met you know couples who just seem to have shack you know unshackled themselves and just have such a amazing beautiful relationship that they were able to you know create their own culture in their own home and not allow you know the dominant culture to dictate what their culture and their relationship is going to be what their culture and their household is going to be and that takes a lot of work you know it takes a lot of hard you know mature conversation to undo what you learned in your indoctrination process as what being a man is about and what you thought being a woman was about you know it it, it really takes some hard sitting down and putting everything on the table and not being upset but then allowing the other your partner to put everything on the table and not taking blame and shooting shots you know what i'm saying so and then on the other side so you got the relationship via the indoctrination is muddy between the two cornerstones the mother and the father then because both of them are trying to fit this mold you know via the indoctrination and the simulation process um that doesn't fit them so they're trying to both both the man and the woman are trying to you know contour themselves you know mind body and spirit into shapes that don't work so naturally that's going to cause friction between the two of them just on that basic level it's going to cause friction in the self as well so the next would be the education process which they go hand in hand because not only are you you have to grow up from a baby but as soon as you're five years old four years old you know you're already being indoctrinated you go to preschools 
that have a curriculum that's not written for you. You then go to, you know, go through grade school, the same thing. You get to high school, same thing. And at the same time, you're still trying to figure out, you know, your body. You got trying to figure out who you are and personality and soul. You're trying to figure out your mental capacity, you know. And then at the same time, you have a system that is, for all intents and purposes, as if it's trying to destroy you. So, you know, how do how do we combat these things and start to, you know, get back some semblance of autonomy for self, autonomy for the, our family units, our autonomy for our communities, you know, and, you know, that's what this whole, these last two episodes have been about is, you know, how, how to recover (laughs) from the indoctrination and the simulation process that we've been, uh, witnessing for the last, um, 400 years or so, or if you want to not even, even just, just from, you know, the emancipation, I just put it there, you know, so that's what I wanted to kind of, uh, talk about because I felt like last episode again, I didn't, uh, I was just talking just from my own viewpoint, but there was a, there is an, an article by a gentleman that I felt as though was pretty interesting because the things that he brought up, he brought up three different uh, topics or issues that he felt was um, kind of, in a way, plaguing what was going on at the moment. Those three being uh, neutrality assumption, assimilation assumption, and compliance assumption. And in his his article, uh, Jerome McChrystal Cup Jr. I uh, found this article in the William and Mary Law Review, uh, published February nineteen ninety five. Issue two, uh, Symposium Brown versus Board of Education after forty years confronting the promise is the name of the article, and. Uh, he, as I said, he, he speaks on the compliance assumption, which is, as it says, where, com, you know, assuming that these new things that were put into place based on the Brown versus Board of Education, assuming that these people, you know, the institutions of uh, education would comply what was being handed down, we know that wasn't the case and this is the compliant assumption across the board with all of the uh sweeping changes so to say that happened you know in that time frame moving to uh today so we still have that issue of assuming that these institutions that we live in this country are going to comply with the changes that are you know, put in place because the one issue about the court system in the Supreme Court is that they do not have a standing army, nor do they have anything to enforce whatever they hand down. 
So if people don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. And we see that every day with uh, politicians, you know, the lying and things like that. Although um, that's a side note, you know, although the politicians lie all the time, um, we know that constitutionally they shouldn't be. You know, that's really against the Constitution. They are not allowed to do that. However, you know, they, you know, they do what they want, basically. So that appliance assumption is still there, assuming that they're going to, you know, comply with what was being handed down in terms of the sweeping changes. Then you have he spoke about uh, the neutrality and assimilation assumptions. And pretty much the neutrality assumption is he's saying that any race neutral policy can be articulated. And that was the issue. You know, when you're trying to create policies, you cannot be race neutral when there's already a group of people who are dominating in all facets of this, you know, of the society because they're not losing the the policies aren't helping the rest of the people. You know, if they're going to be race neutral because they already have such a leg up that um, you can't write it to be race neutral at this point. And then especially when this was being done in 1965, around that time, you know, you can't have, you know, neutral policies. You needed to have policies that specifically stated, you know, the black community this or the black that or, you know, so on and so forth. They didn't do that. So they left these laws and policies um, neutral, which can be in. We know the verbiage of law is ridiculous in the first place. So they can be, you know, misconstrued and, you know, uh, interpreted in any way they wanted to. So, again, that was a losing battle from the beginning. And then the one I really wanted to get to the uh, assumption I mean, the assimilation assumption, uh, the assumption that all blacks seek or should seek assimilation is one of the neutral rules that courts have imposed on the discourse between blacks and white communities, he says. Then he goes on to say the court has consistently answered this question by assuming that assimilation and cultural degradation were the only two courses available and brown too uh the court said that desegregation should proceed with all deliberate speed not because the court wished and you know not because the court wished to protect the culture or values of the black community but because the court assumed that there were no values worth protecting in the black community you know is what he felt what was going on in terms of the assimilation assumption. So assuming, so you have a people who are at the tops of, you know, all the courts and that you will have to go through to get any kind of policies passed, assuming that the best course of action is for blacks to just assimilate and, um, or they should seek assimilation as the answer to the problems. You see, and uh, and it just confounds the the issue. He he he. Club Junior also in his article, uh, the article is titled, you know, 
black people in whiteface and uh in a similar fashion he says quote in a similar fashion black interests on college campuses seem to be outside the purview of school administrators black students who sit together in an effort to create community in a world where their interests and views are often excluded are seen as the fundamental problem preventing the success of integration on college campuses and you can just take that little excerpt and just expand that into all the rest of the areas of uh of life in this society because anytime we you know congregate you know it's a it, it's seen as we're we're the problem we're we're the one that now is being racist because we're congregating together to for, to give ourselves some type of shield or comfort in a sterile world that doesn't offer us any, you know, but we're seen as the problem. And you see this in the family unit, as I just spoke about, you know, briefly with the far as relationships, a black couple that's folk that's functioning at, you know, on all cylinders is seen in this exact way is the problem. A black community coming together and, you know, trying to push forward, you know, uh, policies for their children that are better in terms of education, in terms of, you know, community policies and things like that, whether it's housing, whether, you know, it's work related, trying to create their own union. Any type of congregation is a problem and is seen as uh, then they start pointing the finger. Oh, well, look at you guys. You're 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 being a problem. What do you mean? We're just trying to come together to create and better ourselves and shield ourselves from a system and from people who don't care that we're going through this. But then on top of that, a system that's not helping us in any way, shape or form. You know, and, um, you know, you see this and and so many other of these uh social programs that were created because of the assimilation you know you have uh, lyndon b johnson's great society where all most of the social programs that you know we know today was created you know the only out biggest one outside of that would have been social security and that was under fdr which don't affect anyone until they uh, but you got to pay it and it don't affect anyone until they get to a certain age and you know, who knows what the the future that's going to be after they privatize that. Probably, you know, you're not going to get any money, but that's neither here nor there. But, you know, a lot of the social systems um, that was created out of kind of a pity, I guess. I don't know what, what why it was created, but um, because of the outcry of poor blacks and poor whites, you know, at the time, majority poor whites, they, you know, they all kind of came together and kind of pushed and they got this uh, a lot of these social programs passed and which ultimately helped, you know, more of the uh, of the whites because there's more whites that are on these programs because there's more. So apparently, as they tell us, there's more whites in the country uh, and there probably is. And um so they naturally benefit more from these programs. And even with that, uh, they have programs like for farmers and things where the black community, you couldn't have, you know, some of these social programs 
tore the families apart. You know, like you couldn't have if a woman was getting assistance, there's no man to be present. And especially Section 8 or stuff like that, there was been no men present in that household. However, at the same time, there's instances where the same type of assistance was given to a white family, like a farming family, but the the husband could still be there. You know what I'm saying? So those type of, you know, double standards, you know, exist in a in a system where you have to take on everything that they give. You see, and they're not working. And that's all this is you know, I'm doing. I'm just pointing out the fact that what they tried to do and what they tried to pass off on us and say that, oh, this was the best course of action is not working, was not working, it was never going to work to the begin with, you know? And uh, not only is this an issue, like I said in the beginning, in the black community, but it's also, you know, increasingly, you see there's a larger number of, you know, Latinos that's in the country now, and they're going through the same thing. You know, as far as the assimilation process and to boot, they speak a whole nother language. And in a way, the black community speaks a different language from the dominant culture and the system itself that comes with it. But you physically speak another language. Then you have to learn the language. Then you have to go through all the assimilation, which is contradicting to, you know, the culture that you that you know of the family based culture and you throwing your children into this. Uh, society which is very individual based and then you have conflict in the home you know you have children growing up being well you know not so much of a, a you know with a collective mindset that is conducive to surviving and you know all that they want to be left alone they want you know they have this education now and now they feel like they should just turn their back and go build their own stuff and not look back for their family and their community. And that's a lot of the things that, you know, Carter G. Woodson was talking about, the miseducation of the Negro. However, you can apply that to uh, the Latinos as well. You know, there's some highly educated uh, Latinos that do the same thing. Once they get educated, they disappear. They move out of their, you know, communities and go live in the suburbs with the white folk. You know what I'm saying? Or they go live and a large house away from where they grew up. And we see this a lot in the black community. As soon as somebody makes it, they're gone. But that's part of the, that part, that uh, that subtle nuance of, you know, assimilating into a culture that's not your own. You try, you don't know what to do. So now that you got your piece of the pie, you out of here. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm out. You know, like that's what starving creatures do. You know, they've done many studies on rats with that. You know, you starve a rat with a, in a community of rats, you throw them some food, one that gets the biggest, they're going to disappear with it. And they're going to make sure they do everything in their power to block the rest of them from getting their piece of the pie. They're not going to go back and share it. They starving. You know, self-preservation is what they call it, but they know self-preservation is a double-edged sword. And they play on that. So, you know, and those are just some of the things that I, I you know, I wanted to point out, uh, I want to play this clip by Dr. Joy DeGruy speaking about, you know, because of from the slavery to the assimilation, the post-traumatic stress and, you know, that goes on. And I think I will play it. Uh, it's only about five minutes 
And, you know, I also brought up her book in the last episode towards the back end of the episode, because I think what she speaks about is the other part of this. You know, not only is it just the assimilation or the education, but it's also the the trauma of it all. And uh, I'll play it right now for you. Here is Dr. Joy DeGruy speaking on post-traumatic slave syndrome. Post-traumatic slave syndrome is an explanatory theory that really looks at multi-generational trauma. One of the things that's difficult for people is their first response is, oh my God, that happened so long ago. We're talking about people being captured, shipped, sold, beaten, raped, experimented on, and then you have to ask the question, did the trauma continue? Yes, so 300 years of trauma, no help, freed. No help, more trauma. If it's a sustained trauma, then the, the impact of that is also sustained. When we look at multi-generational trauma, we're looking at people who are maybe victims of natural disasters and their families and their children and generations of folks who have experienced war. Uh, and we know that there are residual uh, mental, emotional, traumatic impact. And what I did was I started to look at the African-American experience, starting with slavery, as a real clear, long, enduring trauma. So I started to see that there were clear connections between that survival behavior and contemporary living in African-American experience. I started to see common behaviors that I took for granted as, well, cultural. There's adaptive behaviors, survival behaviors. Well, what are they? Let's just say 2019, you have a black mother and a white mother. The sons go to school together. They find themselves at a meeting. The black mother leans over to the white mother and says, I just wanted to mention to you that I noticed that your son is really doing quite well. And the white mother's response is, oh, thank you. She begins to go on and on about, he won the science fair, his uncle's an astronaut. She's just oozing. She realizes the black mother's son is actually excelling her son. And she says, well, wait a minute. Your son's the one that's really coming along. And the black mother responds, oh my God, he's a handful, but oh, he just works my nerves. Now, when I'm working with African-American people, it doesn't matter what the audience is. It doesn't matter what class. If I were to ask, is she very proud while she's saying those denigrating things? And everybody laughs and goes, of course, there's a secret. Because everybody black knows that even though the black mother is going, oh my God, she's really proud. So now let's roll that scene back 300 years. And let's say this black mother is working in the fields and a white slave owner comes through and says, wow, that boy is really coming along. What is she gonna say? No, he's not, he's, he's stupid, he's, he's shiftless, he can't work because I don't want you to sell him. So I denigrate them to protect them. That is called appropriate adaptation when living in a hostile environment. The little white boy, say Timmy, you know, he feels really comfortable and happy about what his mom just said about him. And Trey looks at his mom and wonders, why can't you be proud of me? Because he doesn't understand the secret yet. And by the time he learns the secret, he will have already been injured by it. Post-traumatic slave syndrome. PTSD um, is a disorder that occurs as a result of a single trauma. You don't even have to be there to actually get a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. You could just hear about something horrific happening to someone you love. So you have people who have experienced it firsthand, people who have witnessed it in their environment, right? People who are continuing to be oppressed 
that exacerbates any possibility of healing. So it's not post-traumatic stress disorder because then it becomes part of uh, what we call your socialization process. So you begin to normalize a way of living and being. Everything from what we eat to what we believe it means to be a friend. You know, all of these things are colored by history. And if you don't understand it, you're going to fold in things that you've just assumed are normal. But post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, exaggerated startle response, outbursts of anger, uh, feeling of foreshortened future. There was a point where there were you know, African-American children in different urban settings that didn't expect to live to be adults because they saw so much death that they started planning their funerals like at 13, 12, as young as 10. When you start looking at the, the simple biology, you start looking at the, the impact of stress on health. And while we look at general stress, you know, we know finances, you have illnesses, all these different things. How about being black? How does factoring in being black in America impact your stress level and therefore your body's ability to operate its own immune system? Because we know it compromises the immune system. Once you understand it, then you can deal with it. Because you see, it's habitual. You socialize. It becomes part of your being. So one of the ways you begin to address that multi-generational trauma is to work with the people it directly impacts, to hear from them. And when you give the people the information, they, they can use it. I think the first order of business is beginning to have a conversation. And the other is to educate the larger society. You have to stop the assault. So this is not purely a clinical thing. This requires social justice and change. That's where part of the healing is. It's not in a clinical setting or in a pill. It's in fairness and justice and safety and equity. We gotta work with some of those clinical things, some of those issues of panic and anxiety. And we also have to deal with the fact that you have a system that is set up to oppress you and to continue to injure you. Both those things have to be dealt with. And they cannot singularly by themselves affect a change. They have to be done collectively. I hope that clip was helpful, just like the Baldwin clip that I played in earlier in the podcast to kind of sum up exactly what it is that is going on in parts of the snippets that I read from the miseducation of the Negro. Kind of give a idea of what we're dealing with, just in case some of us have uh, forgotten or weren't able to see it but i'm pretty sure most of us are and um yeah it's it's really not a cakewalk or a good time even though life is beautiful life is enjoyable i feel like my life is amazing you know because of what i made it and um the sacrifices and things that my family did to make sure that i was safe at the very least growing up so kudos to my family for that and i just wanted to say you know stay dangerous out here you know we it's time to you know stand up enjoy your life at the same time but learn ways to better yourself learn ways to protect yourself learn ways to reach back and give to others and uplift others that's in your immediate family, immediate community. And once you do that, then we can start to reach out to other groups and help them out as well, you know? And I just want to say, uh, as wrapping this episode up, I do want to say, uh, 
have a good time this weekend. And for those of you who celebrate Dia de Muertos, I think I spelled that, pronounced that right. Sorry. (laughs) If I didn't, I apologize. I've been working on it, but it didn't work out too good this time, I don't think. But Day of the Dead uh, and other uh, in Catholic Catholicism, it would be All Saints Day or All Souls Day, you know. But just know that this is a time for uh, reverence. This is a time for sacrificing something that you know is going to help you get to Uh, the next level in your life or whatever that next level is for you and it's also a time to remember that remember your ancestors and the ones that came before you that fought hard and to help you get to at least where you are now you know whether it's just an immediate family member that passed or you know even if you remember or connected to some of the ancestors that you talk to uh, daily or not you know this is a time to get to get to learn who your ancestors were because uh not only is this time of the year celebrated across the planet for good reason it's also a time of year in cosmically where there's a lot of energy pinned up and lined up and a lot of this this is why this is a big time for meditation and prayer uh and things of that nature the veil between uh, our realms and the realms of the ancestors that's why they call it day of the dead is very thin so some of you might have a lot of vivid dreams in this time some of you might have nightmares depending on <laughs> your lifestyle and how you lived your life and the decisions that you made so on and so forth uh, but enjoy yourself this is also a time of, of celebration it's a time to celebrate uh the resting and sleeping and basically the renewal of things going into decay and harvest so it can start again you know it's also symbolism there there's the reason why these these seasons change when they change and how they change the colors and things like that so uh keep that in mind and enjoy yourselves until next podcast be safe peace Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking Podcast. Like, subscribe, leave a comment, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts. If you want to reach the podcast directly, email address Frankly Speaking Podcast number one at gmail.com. You can start a conversation that you want to uh, about any topics that you would like to hear on the podcast if you would like your business promoted on the podcast as well that's where you will be able to reach me and we can discuss that as well again thank you stay dangerous enjoy your weekend have fun until next time